Hey there, podcast listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. This sermon is from the second Sunday in Lent. It's from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52, and it's called Third Time's a Charm. So I hope it's helpful and meaningful to you. Um, it is, it's, well, I'll explain it in the sermon, but the third passion prediction from Jesus to his disciples, and they keep blowing it and missing the point. And so it's, um, you know, in some ways, a word of encouragement to us today is people who strive to follow Jesus, but never can quite seem to get it perfect. And so um, we know that as we struggle, we have good role models in the disciples, I guess. But the we had such a meaningful worship service yesterday. Uh, we had a baptism in the midst of it. And so um, very special first baptism we had done uh, in the church itself in a long time. And so it was a really meaningful um, experience of preparing the church and the baptistry and sort of thinking through the process, when and how do we do it in worship. It's one of those gifts of, you know, if we did this every week, we would do it without even thinking about it. But by virtue of it having been eight or 10 years, um, forced us to, to be really intentional and deliberate in how we approached um, the baptism of this young woman who um, has been attending for several months. And so it really was a gift and a celebratory moment in worship. And so the sermon is shorter just to accommodate that in worship, but I really do hope it's still meaningful for you in your own spiritual journey. As always, you can check us out on williamsburgbaptist.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook, and I'll put links in the podcast description. Hope that you have a wonderful week. God bless. We have been in the heart of the Gospel of Mark for a couple of weeks now, and if if you chop the Gospel into three distinct sections, the first part covers sort of the majority of Jesus' ministry, call of the disciples, miracles, baptism, feedings, walking on water, and so forth. And then the last part is what we call the passion narrative that tells the story of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. And then this middle part that we're in right now serves as a sort of hinge around which Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection pivot. Do you remember two weeks ago uh, when this room was filled with light on Transfiguration Sunday? We stood on the mountaintop with the disciples, and Jesus said for the first time, if you want to understand what it means that I'm the Messiah, what it means to follow me, you have to understand that I'm going to suffer and be killed. And it was one of those record-scratching moments that left the disciples completely baffled. And Peter took Jesus aside and said, as long as I'm with you, that will never happen. And Jesus said, in effect, don't be an obstacle to this path that I must walk. Fall in line. And something happens two more times in this middle section of Mark. We skipped over a second prediction from Jesus about his betrayal and death, and the disciples still don't get it. In today's reading, what Sean read the very beginning of it was a third such passion prediction. And once again, the disciples blow it. Clifton Black, Bible scholar up at Princeton, says, Mark's implied motto for the disciples seems to be, if at first you don't perceive, fail, fail again. I love it. 
As the passage begins, Jesus and his followers on the road to Jerusalem, and there's a hint that some of them are beginning to sense the danger uh, that is involved in following Jesus, especially towards this confrontation with religious and political authorities. The text says some were afraid, but Jesus spells it out for them. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, where I will be handed over to the chief priests and the legal experts. They'll condemn me. I'll be tortured and abused and killed, and after three days, I'll rise again. We don't know how all of the disciples respond, except that immediately after this, James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, they were there for the transfiguration, come up to Jesus with a request. When you come into your glory, can we sit next to you, one on your left and one on your right? We want to have the seats in the place of honor. This is kind of like saying, Jesus, we want to sit on the front row with you at the Super Bowl. It's, if, if this happened today, Jesus would respond by sending a facepalm emoji to his friends, I think. They just don't get it. Jesus is having a heart-to-heart about the violent death that he's facing, and all James and John seem to be able to think about is the benefits that they will reap by their close association with the Messiah. They have no idea what challenges and suffering they'll face as his followers. They think following Jesus is all upside and no downside. Plenty of us still do, I can't help but think. Trying to put on a positive spin on it, biblical scholar Claudio Carvales says that it's easy to relate to the disciples. He says, I love how the disciples are just like us. <laughs> he, he says, we are all stupid and self-centered like the disciples. Unlike him, I'm just going to speak for myself, but I can't help but find this is a tremendous word of grace and encouragement as a follower of Jesus today. The dis- disciples are dense and self-centered just like me sometimes. They fail to see the bigger picture. If they couldn't understand back then, it makes me feel better when I feel like I'm struggling to follow Jesus to this day. Jesus then tries to explain the contrast between what they expect and what he offers. He says, the Romans, on the one hand, lord their authority over people, and the elite power brokers order people around. But that's not how it's going to be in my kingdom. That's not how it's going to be in God's kingdom. Whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant to all. It flips their expectations. It flips the worldly paradigm. And the disciples might be forgiven for not getting it. But what happens next gives them one more opportunity to understand. The road takes them to Jericho, and there's a blind beggar sitting along the roadside, name of Bartimaeus. He's sitting on the outskirts of town, marginalized in just about every way you might imagine because of his disability. He's a nobody for all intents and purposes, and certainly not the type of person you'd ever ask to sit at your left hand or right hand when you come into your glory. But when he hears that Jesus is nearby, he begins to call out, Jesus, show me mercy. And the people predictably say, shut up, quiet down. Why would Jesus give you the time of day? He's got more important things to do. Well, Jesus does stop because in his words, he came to be a servant of all, including the nobodies, maybe especially for the nobodies. Bartimaeus tells Jesus he wants to see, and sure enough, Jesus heals him. And Bartimaeus responds by following him along the way. 
His desperate pleading gives way to faith and trust and gratitude. He becomes a model disciple as he follows Jesus towards Jerusalem. If you flip over to the very next verse later today, you'll find that you're in Mark chapter 11, which is the Palm Sunday story. We'll get there in a few weeks in uh, worship, but it starts the passion narrative. It's the beginning of the end, really. And so if we step back, Jesus has predicted his suffering and death three times now, and this heart of the gospel that we've been in for the past two weeks begins and ends with Jesus healing two different blind men. The gospel writer bookends these stories with Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to suffer and be suffered and <laughs> suffer and be killed with stories about these healings. The disciples don't get it. It's as if the disciples only see what they want to see, as if they are blind to the truth. They want to make following Jesus into what they want it to be, what they think it should be based on their own hopes and biases and preconceived notions about who he is and what it means to be the Messiah. It's almost comical in today's reading that when Jesus predicts his death, the immediate response of James and John is to begin advocating for a better seat at the table in what they think is a hierarchical movement. They find themselves jostling for first place and for glory and to be served while Jesus is telling them, I came to be a servant. Meanwhile, these two blind men who are marginalized because of their disabilities are more receptive to truly following Jesus. So I can't help but wonder as I read today's passage, when am I more like Bartimaeus? And when am I more like James and John? In what ways am I blind to new understandings because of my own desire to make Jesus and God into who I want them to be? It's always a danger that we encounter as people of faith. Carvala says that we Christians are so quick to turn this immense gospel into pettiness. Instead of serving others, we are all about our own recognition and honor and entitlements. Like the disciples, we keep repeating the same things that divide us, destroy us, and break us. It's so easy to try to make Jesus and God into who we want them to be. Anne Lamott points to the danger when she says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Let that serve a word of warning to us as Christians in America today. Open up your eyes. See Jesus for who he truly is. Listen to him. And like Bartimaeus, rather than jockeying for a better seat at the table, what if we were instead to live our lives from a place of gratitude? Gratitude is so vital to a life of faith. In fact, it turns out gratitude is the birthplace of joy and generosity. When we're intentionally grateful, we send positive energy out into the universe in a whole host of ways. Douglas Adams, not the author to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but the other one, this would be a strange quote coming from that Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams writes, Gratitude connects us to others. When we're truly grateful, we remember all of those who helped make our happiness possible, who bring goodness into our lives. Then we're able to recognize people and enjoy them and appreciate our differences. 
just as importantly, when we live our lives from a place of gratitude, we turn outward instead of inward. Gratitude decenters us from ourselves and opens our hearts to God and others. Gratitude leads us into acts of kindness and service. Gratitude leads us into following the way of Jesus. Following the way of Jesus through the baptismal waters is an invitation to see the world in new ways. Jesus invites us to respond with faith and gratitude, to see the new possibilities for the transformation of the world from one of selfishness, power-grabbing, and greed to a world shaped by generosity and love and wholeness for all. As we continue to follow as people of faith, I can't help but think that Shyamala and all who pass through the baptismal waters and all who truly seek to follow are showing us the way. May we be people who follow as well. Thanks be to God. Amen.